You are listening to the Speak Podcast. The podcast featuring talks from Speak, a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. Welcome to the Speak Podcast, produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. New episodes available every week on all your favorite podcast platforms. Speak is a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Each Speak Talk features three key moments. The moment of truth, the moment of transformation, and the moment of impact. We host pop-up events all over the world, and now we are bringing our talks to your device. Our speakers are stepping onto the stage and into the spotlight, and now onto this podcast. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Speak Podcast. I'm George Andriopoulos, the architect and one of the co-leaders here at Speak and your host for today's episode. Before we get into today's theme, I wanted to thank all of our followers, all of the supporters of the Speak platform for everything that you have done to support us and our mission across the globe. Today is a momentous occasion for speak today as you are listening to this episode 10 of season one of this podcast we are traveling tonight to belfast northern ireland for our first international show speak transformation and we could not be prouder of this accomplishment co-produced by myself george andriopoulos Brittany breslin of impact communications and dr Kristen donnelly this event is going to be groundbreaking in northern ireland and we are so excited to bring voices from all over the world to our platform let's dive into today's episode whose micro theme is relationships, one of the easiest micro themes for us to discover within our larger themes. So let's dive into these three incredible talks. Our first talk today comes from our Speak Beginnings pop-up event. Published speaker Mark Fujiwara was in a rut, spiraling far away from where he wanted to be in all parts of his life. Suffering from PTSD from past traumas and struggling from mental health issues, he had to shake things up. Mark decided to challenge himself to go outside of his comfort zone for a hundred days straight. What transpired was that he miraculously overcame his PTSD and mental health struggles. His business skyrocketed and he met the woman of his dreams, which is our focus today. Now he lives a life where he's completely his true self, allowing him to reach new heights in every part of his life. Without further ado, please enjoy Mark Fujiwara with my uncomfortable 100 days to mental well-being and indestructibility. The three most important sentences I ever wrote in my life were to a woman on the dating app eHarmony. It took me seven hours to craft these three sentences. But here, I had just one chance, one golden opportunity, and her name is Amy, and she is dazzling. 
I fall in love instantly, especially with what she wrote on her profile. Now, this message had to be perfect. Not too short, not too funny, not too short, not too long. Funny, but not trying too hard. Mention some stuff in her profile, but don't appear to be scary. After seven hours and 42 different versions, I press send. She responds, we go back and forth, I ask her out, and I get the first date. I travel three hours and 25 minutes to the date, and in the car, every second, every moment, I am rehearsing and practicing these 16 pre-planned interesting stories about myself that I plan to tell her and charm her off her feet. I am more prepared than Michael Phelps before an Olympic swimming event. <laughs> Amy arrives. Beautiful. Stunning, even better in person. She's got amazing style. I'm starting to feel this incredible energy from her. And you know those 16 well-rehearsed, planned out stories down to the T that I was planning to knock her off her feet with? Well, I forgot all of them. They go out the window. It's okay. We sit down. We're off to the races. First date going well. There's flow. There's chemistry. And then... 20 minutes in, my mathematical brain takes over like it does in most situations. You see, I have this dating algorithm back on my computer at home. And the bar for the second date is a previous high score of 1210 out of 2400. Not too bad. Now I start calculating Amy's score in my head. Amy's got a 2040. A 2040 out of 2400. And by the way, the 360 points she's short of perfection are things I don't even know about her yet. The date goes so swimmingly well, we don't order for another two hours. The date lasts, also a record, four hours and 20 minutes. The next morning at about 11, 11 a.m., I text Amy to ask her out on a second date. She says, yes, I get the second date with the woman that completely obliterated the previous high score on my dating algorithm. And more importantly, filled my heart up more than any other first date ever could. The catalyst to this moment in my life was inspired by the realization that I was feeling stuck. I was two years removed from a tough divorce. And when I say tough divorce, I mean it wasn't my idea. I had two kids at the time, and although I was an absolute present father, and they were my main priority, I was still struggling heavily from the divorce, the PTSD from it, even tougher, a lot tougher, was seeing how my kids, my kids were still struggling from the divorce and the PTSD. I knew right then and there, I never ever wanted to father another child again. The, the risk of, of bringing in another kid into this world and subjecting with a potential trauma like that, no way. Right then and there, though, I knew I had to shake things up. 
Recently, there was a TED Talk speaker at my mastermind group by the name of Ja Jung. Spoke about rejection therapy. It's an inspirational story about Ja doing 100 straight days of seeking out rejection, and it was completely life-altering for him. So I decided to challenge myself to do 100 straight days of getting outside of my comfort zone. I did everything to stretch my comfort zone. Every part of my life, fitness, health, spirituality, business, and yes, dating. You see, I was in this dating comfort zone for a long time of dating women that were only two years younger, two years older, and within a 10-mile radius of my house. So I stretched it out a little bit. I decided to date women that were not two years younger, but 10 years younger. Not the 10-mile 10, 10 radius from my house, but the 100-mile radius from my house. The next day, Amy appears. Now, these 100 days of going outside my comfort zone came from a place in a time where I was so far away from where I wanted to be in every part of my life. I was in a rut. I was spiraling. But I knew these 100 days of getting uncomfortable were exactly what I needed. So the first day of the challenge, I jump into a very cold body of water for five minutes. Thank you, Dave Asprey. By the way, it's really good for inflammation and fat loss. But the point is, is that several days later, I make that call to the CEO who's got that billion-dollar company. It's not as scary. I make more calls like this, and my business goes through the roof. Puts me on a path where I'm going to change, going to completely change my industry. I was pre-diabetic at the time. A bit scary. So instead of slowly decreasing my sugar intake, forget that. I go all protein, all plant-based, all the carbs. And in two and a half months, I get back down to normal glucose levels and never look back. I also was not in the best running shape at the time. So what did I do? I go out and find the best marathon coach, who, by the way, is the toughest and most grueling one out there. But in 16 weeks, I not only finish a marathon, but I run it so fast that I qualify for my lifelong dream of the Boston Marathon. Something important to note here is that I don't experience being uncomfortable like most people. You see, when I was 24, I attended this very informal mastermind group. There was about eight people in the room. We go into the room, the door shuts, we sit down, and the leader tells us that each of us has to stand up one at a time and talk about who we are and what we do. And 30 seconds, 60 seconds max, I'm fourth in line, and this is when I have my first full-blown panic attack. Oh, man. All my fears, all my phobias come crashing at me. 
in uncharted territories at the same time, full force. My agoraphobia, my claustrophobia, and my fear of public speaking bring me to my knees. I feel like I'm gonna pass out, vomit, or drop dead. And by the way, I have a phobia of looking bad in front of people, and I have an even bigger phobia of throwing up. <laughs> so at this point, dropping dead is the only option here. <laughs> I also quiver at any thought of rejection, any type of failure, letting my family down. Hey, we're checking all the phobia boxes, all my phobia boxes, as bold and as permanent as possible here. I felt alone in my anxiety. I felt alone in my fears. And if, it wasn't until I reached out to a family member and shared with her my mental health struggles that something profound happened. Now, one of my comfort zone tasks was to reach out to a family member, share the mental health struggles. And the reason why this is so uncomfortable is that it is taboo in my family and in my culture to speak of any mental health struggles. You just don't even go there. So I picked up the phone and I called Gail. Gail is one of the oldest of my generation. She's also the matriarch of her family and one of the strongest women I know. I love Gail. And I opened up to her and I told her that when our cousin Carson died from suicide, I understood why. Because I have had suicidal thoughts before. I also share with her about the fierce anxiety that either makes me feel like my heart is going to explode or I'm going to pass out or die. And then Gail shares with me her experience. Gail tells me that she suffers from anxiety. She has panic attacks as well. Wow, things completely changed at that moment. I am no longer strange. This is not all in my head. If she has it and I have it, I have someone to talk to. Gail gave me that knowledge, the permission to share this with every other person. So I ran to my doctor's office and I told her about the divorce. I told her about the PTSD. I told her about feeling stuck. She put me on a low dose of antidepressants, and she told me, it happens a lot. It happens to a lot of people. So Gail, after 46 years, she taught me that it is okay to share with others exactly who I am. Now, the 100 days of going outside my comfort zone are long in the past, but I still do whatever I can to get outside my comfort zone because that's exactly who I am today. And that man who was bumbling around on eHarmony and on his first date six years ago, who, whose PTSD could have never, ever 
put him in a situation to get married again or father another child? Well, let me tell you something. That man is now married to that woman who he had that four-hour and 20-minute date with. Yes, I am married to Amy, and Amy is amazing. She completely allows me to be my true self, and that makes me indestructible. And together, we've built this life where I'm not afraid to father a child again, which made it such a joy to bring our daughter into this world. So in 2019, Amy and I celebrated the arrival of our daughter, Stella. And Stella constantly and continuously pushes me way outside of my comfort zone. Thank you. That was Mark Fujiwara with my uncomfortable 100 days to mental well-being and indestructibility. I want to thank our channel partner, Trisha Brooke at The Big Talk for sending Mark over to us. He was such an incredible speaker to collaborate with. I had the pleasure of working with Mark. And after our first phone call, we knew that we had a connection. He was such a loving father and somebody whose relationships in the past really dictated some of the paths that he would then take in the future. And it's something that for me, I could always relate with. So we had such an easy time collaborating with each other and really turning this talk into such an incredible masterpiece. Now, even further than that, it was so cool to work with Mark and Trisha because they were filming a documentary at our Speak Beginnings event for Big Stages, a feature-length documentary about public speakers and their journey to big stages, directed by Trisha Brooke. The movie is premiering at the Chelsea Film Festival on October 14th, so if you're listening to this before that, please get your tickets to visit the film festival or you can watch online as well. Check out the link in the show notes. Thank you, Mark, for your incredible talk. To introduce our next talk is the producer of Speak Homecoming, in Carrollton, Texas, Cheryl West Long. Our next published speaker is Paul Kirch. I had never met Paul before our initial conversation about Speak by way of introductions from channel partner Meredith Grundy. It did not take long, however, to see that the Speak platform would fit Paul well as Paul loves to tell stories. His thoughtful reflections into his own life made his stories even more powerful. From Speak Homecoming, Recorded at the K Plaza Art Center in Carrollton, Texas, here's Paul Kirch with how a moment of clarity gave me the ultimate gift. We often learn powerful lessons from our parents. For example, my parents were always there for me. They never missed sporting events, concerts, or other activities. I always admired that. And I vowed to do the same for my kids, to be present. In October 2016, I found myself a divorced father of two young kids. I was a self-employed marketing professional, a business coach, and I hosted a top 10 business podcast show, which stemmed from a radio show I hosted called Boss Academy Radio. The show was exciting, and it really fueled my entrepreneurial passion. However, the more success, the more sacrifice I was making on the home front. In fact, from the time my kids were born, 
I was probably overly committed to my business endeavors. I was walking a dangerous path for a guy who was committed to being present. To be fair, my marriage was challenged long before we divorced. Before the launch of my first business, we both worked for a company that we absolutely loved. The owner was interested in exiting, so there was an opportunity for us to take over the business and run it while he worked on other projects. In the early days of discussion, this seemed like a dream opportunity. However, on vacation, while visiting family, we received a call that disrupted everything. He called us to tell us that he was selling the company and that we'd have to sign a contract with the new buyers. We were both devastated by this news. After a few days, however, I quickly got on board with the new management. She did not. So we went from business partners to being at odds. It didn't take long for me to see that the new company culture was not a fit. And it definitely wasn't helping my marriage. So I decided to take action. I negotiated on my contract and I launched my first company. Here I was leaving a steady paycheck, benefits, stability, all for the opportunity to follow my dreams. What could go wrong? And did I mention that my wife was eight months pregnant at the time? To say I was taking some risks was an understatement. I still remember the look on my son's face that held him for the first time. They handed me this sweet baby boy who had the most pronounced cone-shaped head. <laughs> and while I was taken back by this, the nurse assured me that eventually this would take back a normal shape. And to be honest with you, I didn't care. I loved this child no matter what. And I vowed I was going to be there for him. I was going to be present. Two years later, I welcomed my baby girl into the world very much the same way. There I was holding this beautiful girl, celebrating the fact that I was there. Man, I felt like I was nailing this whole parenting thing. I must have been. <laughs> After all, I was present. I loved being a father. However, being a husband proved much more challenging for me. Previous business struggles, it really drove a, drove a wedge between us. And there was a lot of anger and resentment that was built up in that time. I look back on that, and it was a lot for people to go through, you know, working together, having those failures. But ultimately, I knew that I was going to be okay because I had these children that I loved so much. While I look at my time as a, as a parent, as an entrepreneur, I often feel like I didn't have my priorities in the right place. And I think that's a challenge that a lot of us face. I was focusing on the wrong things at the wrong times. Now, eventually, we decided that we could be better parents apart than together. I was terrified of this idea of 
raising a child of divorce, let alone two. But I knew that I was going to be there. I was going to be committed to being there. I was going to be present as much as I could, just like my parents were. I always had a loving relationship with my mother. She was loving, nurturing, and I always felt so close to her. However, I didn't have that same closeness with my father. And it scared me because I didn't want my children to feel that way about me. My dad was different than my mother, and I think that's why there was maybe a little bit of a disconnection. You know, among those differences, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. My dad was a teacher and a farmer. While my mom said, I love you daily, my dad uttered that phrase one time to his three sons right after my mother's funeral. And my dad did his best. He showed love by being present. He didn't always share stories from his younger years, but when he did, we were often glued to every word. And my dad was like a lot of fathers. He told the same tale over and over. My brothers and I knew that my father loved us, but it just wasn't something he could express in words. However, my father was always there. He was always present. And that's how he showed love. One of my favorite stories my father would share was when he was in Korea. He was based in Newfoundland during the Korean War. General Curtis LeMay, who was known for this rough and tumble demeanor, had, was leading strategic air command. And he'd showed up at the base. My father was working in an office pool. He had his head down, typing. He saw these eagles out of the corner of his eyes, and he pretended he didn't see them. LeMay walked over and ripped him up one side and down the other. Now, my father, ever defiant, always tells the story, or told the story that he had, with great pride, that he got in the last words during that confrontation. And I would always ask my father, hey, Dad, what were those last words? Yes, sir. <laughs> 2019, my father passed away after a battle with dementia. That affliction had robbed him of his memories and his voice and his ability to communicate. And I barely went home. And when I did, it was really difficult. But a few days prior to his passing, I showed up with my nephew, and my middle brother, to go to visit my dad. And I'm standing there in this room with this man who can't talk. He hasn't known who I am in three years. And I recalled that story, and I retold it to him. The punchline arrives. My father laughed, and I saw a familiar sparkle in his eye. Well, a fleeting moment left a huge impact. Once again, my father gave the gift of presence. It was a gift I thought he was done giving a long time ago. But there was something else this time, a true moment of connection. That was a defining moment for me. 
because I no longer saw being present as enough. I saw that I wanted to build real connections. Yes, I still want to be present with my family. I still want to focus on their, their needs, but I want to be connected. I say that we stop focusing on just being present with our families and we focus on being engaged, being interested, and truly being committed. And most importantly, let's focus on building real connections. That was Paul Kirsch with how a moment of clarity gave me the ultimate gift. I had the pleasure of being in the audience for Paul's talk, and it really struck a chord with me as a dad, as somebody that just understands how communicating with your child is so important. I, I, I can't say enough good things about this talk. I really enjoyed it, and I thank Paul for everything that he brought to the Speak platform. Our final published speaker for this episode is Melissa Center, who is marrying Jake Gyllenhaal or at least that's what her Jewish mom thinks. So she wrote a solo show about it and called it Marrying Jake Gyllenhaal. Maybe he'll see it and maybe they'll get hitched. She doesn't really want to marry Jake Gyllenhaal, but she does want to share her story with the world because art and laughter heal and everybody loves a celebrity wedding. Here's Melissa Center with My Mom Thinks I'm Marrying Jake Gyllenhaal from Speak Laughter. My Jewish mom does not get comedy, which makes no sense because we're Jews. Uh, she doesn't think she's funny, but she really is, which makes her even more funny. And she doesn't understand why people think she's funny, which adds to the comedy. And then there's this. She thinks I'm supposed to marry Jake Gyllenhaal, for real. So I made a solo show about it called Marrying Jake Gyllenhaal, because, I mean, why wouldn't I? And because at the time of its inception, I desperately needed to laugh. Let's go back in time. It's 2015 and I've just ended a 10-year relationship. I did love him, but I was always looking for that thing in him, whatever that thing is that says you're the one and could never quite find it. And so it goes. My mom starts sending me newspaper articles and emails and texts about Jake Gyllenhaal. Most eligible Jewish bachelor. Jake's finally ready to settle down and have a family. Jake's special relationship with his sister and his mom. I mean, it was ridiculous. He's a movie star and I'm not. So I did what any normal self-respecting single person would do. I set up a profile on Bumble, and Match, and JDate, and JSwipe just in case, and OkCupid, and Clover, but not Tinder, Tinder's for sluts. <laughs> Bachelor number one, hi! You don't remember me, do you? Um, it's cool, we met like once at Nick's pub, you know Aubrey, right? Yeah, small world. We dated, she dumped me. Want a drink? Oh, sure, uh, what do you drink? A lot, I'm Irish, but I'm not drinking. Oh, I don't have to get anything. You're like shiny, huh? Your face. Uh, oh, I, I, I just reapplied my lip gloss? No, you have this like veneer. Oh, this is my first date after a really long-term relationship. How long? 
10 years. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so how's it going for you on the acting front? Kind of got blackballed from a couple casting directors' offices. Oh? Yeah, I showed up high one too many times. Oh. It's cool. I was mainly auditioning for commercials and their bullshit, so, <laughs> right. I got busted for selling drugs out of my car. Oh, uh, what kind of drugs? All of them. Oh, it's cool. I, my dad's a cop. I just had to go to rehab. Oh, when did you get out? Last week. Oh. Want to get out of here? Um, Sure. Sweet. You driving? I don't have a car. You don't have a car? Yeah, don't make me feel bad about it. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, okay. YOLO! <laughs> I know. But desperate times call for desperate measures. So I let him go down on me. He said he was good at it. <laughs> Bachelor number two. Out of the blue, I get a message from someone I had happened to go, go to Northwestern with. J-Date, really? Somehow he found me and we connected. It felt like fate. We'd have hours-long conversations on the phone and FaceTime dates. He was in Atlanta, I was in LA. He'd send me poetry by Neruda. He'd send me good morning texts every single day. We'd talk about marriage and children, things I wasn't sure I actually wanted until he made it seem real. This went on for some time with no indication of when he'd actually come and visit me. Meanwhile, Jake Chillenhall, for some reason, everywhere I'd go, I'd be one degree apart from him. For example, I needed to find an apartment. I'm in a kitchen scouting an apartment and I see a postcard of a movie directed by Stephen Gyllenhaal. I tell the potential roommate about my weird connection and he tells me he was in that movie. Stephen Gyllenhaal lives around the corner and he sees them all the time. Okay, I'm at work shooting the shit with my boss. I say, you think your mom's crazy? Mine is convinced I'm supposed to marry Jake Gyllenhaal. He says he just bumped into him, literally, they collided on the Venice Beach boardwalk the day before. I book a role on the TV show Masters of Sex. In the green room, I strike up conversation with Annalie Ashford, one of the show's stars. My ears perk up because she's talking about a show she has going on in New York, and I say, oh, what show? I used to live there. Sunday in the Park with George, with Jake Gyllenhaal. Back to Bachelor number two. I'm sick of this long distance thing, so I set up a date with a hot-looking Israeli guy at a neighborhood bar. Oh my, Itai, shalom. <laughs> I spend the night at his house. He asks me if I'm bi, says he senses I might also like women, then proceeds to fuck me like I'm a porn star. I end up with a yeast infection. The next day, I do the walk of shame to my car, LA and I get a message from bachelor number two, Mr. J-Date. You fucked him, didn't you? So much for true love, cunt. Somehow he knew. The barrage of communication I receive in the coming days and weeks is like out of the movie Zodiac or something, so I take myself to the LAPD. Scared and alone, I approach the young police officer who proceeds to hit on me 
as I'm reporting Mr. J-Date for harassment. I leave the station in shock, but then again, this is 2016, and misogyny is alive and well in the ether. My next boyfriend turns out to be a highly functioning but closeted alcoholic who tries to get me to steal those little bathroom soaps out of a maid's cart from a trip to Palm Springs. Thank you, next. One tells me to fuck off after I tease him just a little whilst we are naked together in bed. And one actually assaults me. I feel like I'm dying inside. <clears throat> I know something has to change. I think well, maybe I should move back to New York, but something convinces me to stay. A girlfriend of mine invites me to a women's only writing group, which I, I really need. I show up with my laptop and, and really no plan on what I'm gonna write, open up my laptop and suddenly something starts pouring out of me in the form of a play, a solo play with music that marries my experience with Jake Gyllenhaal, marrying Jake Gyllenhaal. Suddenly I'm hearing songs, lyrics, raps, Jews can't rap. I read it out loud and everyone laughs. About a month or so later I attend an event where, surprise, I'm selected to pitch in front of actor and renowned indie filmmaker Mark Duplass. I, I submit some project in advance, a, a very light-hearted TV pilot about inherited ancestral trauma, but I admit on stage in front of 500-plus people that I'm having a really hard time. Mark looks at me with compassion and says, well, is there, is there something you want to be working on? And I look out to the audience and I say, my mom's convinced I'm supposed to marry Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> And the place goes wild. Everyone laughs. Mark jumps out of his seat. He starts acting out scenarios. People run up to me afterwards. They start telling me their run-ins with Jake. It's so clear I have to tell this story. Now I'm all in. I learn that Annalie Ashford and Jake Gyllenhaal are remounting Sunday in the Park with George in London on the West End at the same time the Edinburgh Festival Fringe is going on in Scotland. Bingo. So I make a plan. I'm going to premiere my show at the Fringe. I buy a ticket to see Sunday in the Park with George. Somehow I'm gonna get my show information to Jake Gyllenhaal. I have my flights, accommodations, theater booked. It's happening. And then, global pandemic. The world shuts down. The days and months of fear and isolation take their toll. But at some point, I make a decision I can no longer stress about where my money is going to come from or whether or not I'm in a romantic partnership. Instead, I, I take a step forward into my joy and I decide to let my artist self lead. She has never led me astray. And so when it is safe to do so, I produce a COVID safe production of my show. I remember the feeling of walking into the theater for the first time and hearing live musicians play my music. We live streamed the show for an audience hungry for a theater-going experience and in real need for a laugh. My mom doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. <laughs> the play is very personal. She did inspire it and she doesn't get comedy, but she's proud. I moved back to New York and I have since been on a mission to bring 
my solo show off Broadway and beyond because, I mean, it's amazing, obviously, but really I want to stick it to my mom. <laughs> Marrying Jake Gyllenhaal kept me alive through the darkest of times. If only he'd returned my phone calls. <laughs> Thank you. So thank you so much, Melissa, for this incredible talk. That does it for this episode of The Speak Podcast. I want to personally thank you for visiting us here at the podcast and listening to these incredible talks. But if you want to watch them, check out the link in our show notes and hit up our YouTube channel to watch these incredible talks as well. And remember, we have a ton of events coming up in the next few months, pop-up events and specialty main stage events. Check out our website, speakevent.com, for details. We'll see you next time, guys. Thanks so much. The Speak Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios, executive produced by Fred P. Banning, Jason Martin, and George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Champions Day, is by Lupus Nocti. Incidental music, Melting Places, is by Andreas Kantu. Music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. The Speak Podcast is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow Speak at Speak underscore event on Twitter and at Speak Event on all other social media platforms. Visit our website, speakevent.com, for upcoming events, channel partner, sponsorship, and speak at work opportunities. And follow all the great podcasts produced by Lunchpad 516 Studios.